0: I hope these days are reminding you as it's reminding me just how precious it is to gather physically in, in a location like this, um, how wonderful it is to week after week take that gift for granted. I know I take it for granted. I just expect it will be here and that it will come and, and we'll always have it. And uh, in this season, may we be reminded that um, that this, this is a life-giving thing, um, that God has intended the gathering of his people to be. Uh, a a life-giving encounter with himself and with each other. And so may this increase your longing for when we're able to be restored to fellowship with one another again and able to gather in the same place and and see each other's faces and and hug each other and um, pray for one another and encourage one another. I, I know... I'm excited to get back to those days and may the Lord speed it so that we're able to do it soon. But in the meantime, uh, praise him for the gift of technology and for the gift of being able to connect with one another in these ways. And and this morning what I want to do is is preach um, a sermon on chapter 3 of Titus, which Larry just read for us, um, and give us some perspectives on what we're all dealing with in these days. And so we're going to get a little bit away from Exodus chapter 33, but we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week, but this, this week, since we're all thinking about it, it's, it's all over our news media, it's all over our, our timelines, on our Facebook pages, on social media, on everywhere you turn, um, we're being reminded of this, even in the way it's, uh, it's uh, causing our lives to be disrupted and changed and altered, and so I pray that this morning we would be encouraged and given perspective for how to think through issues like this. Obviously, Titus chapter 3 is not dealing with a pandemic all right, he's not talking about uh, an island. Uh, he is writing, uh, Paul is writing to Titus, who's on the island of Crete, but Crete is not facing a pandemic. Um, rather, they're facing a, a need in which Titus is writing, namely the establishment of a local church and several local churches there, and to bring them under order. But what's interesting here in this chapter is the things that he says that are good for us to hear. For instance, in chapter 1, he says, remind them. And then in chapter Chapter 3, verse 8, he says that the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So I really can't think of a a better passage to think about. These are things we need to be reminded of whether we're facing a pandemic or not. These are things that are profitable for us to consider whether or not we're facing a difficult time as as a country or as a culture or even as a world. And he says these things are excellent for people. So the things we're going to think about over the next few minutes together are the most profitable, excellent things we can think about. They're things that we need to be reminded of continually, and especially reminded of when we're facing times like we are now. So this morning, the sermon is called Perspectives for a Pandemic. And I chose the word for intentionally. I could have said perspectives on A pandemic, but I chose not to do that because this sermon is not going to so much focus on how we should think about the pandemic. You're you're receiving that all week long, but rather how we should respond to it, what we should do in light of it. And I think these words from Paul to Titus inform how we should respond to it as well. So we're going to look at three instructions this morning from Titus chapter three, verses one through eleven, on what we should be doing in times like this, and then when this time's over. Lord willing, what we'll do after that as well, but especially in these times. Number one, here's the first thing we need to remember. Brothers and sisters, in this moment, let's remember what to do. You know, it, it can be so disorienting to have our lives kind of tossed upside down. We, we lose our bearings, we get out of our rhythms, and, and we just start groping for some handlebars to try to hang on and figure out some normalcy. Well, Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 give us our marching orders. It tells us what we're supposed to be doing now. In fact, he tells us three things that we're supposed to do. So in this moment, let's remember what to do. First of all, let's remember that we submit obediently to the governing authorities. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Again, Peter says something similar in First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, or as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Obviously, the reason we're not gathering this morning is because we're seeking to obey Titus 3, verse 1. We're seeking to obey Romans 13, verse 1. We're seeking to obey 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. We are not gathering as an expression of faithfulness to God. Yes, we seek to honor our governor's wishes and those in local authority and in abiding by those good and wise precautions that they give us, but the more fundamental reason is we are honoring God. So I want you to feel that in this moment, as we are separated from one another, I want you to know that we're doing so out of obedience to God according to his word. So be comforted by that. Be encouraged by that. This is not being unfaithful to God. This is, from our perspective, a way that we are being faithful to God. Justin Early, in an article for the Gospel Coalition this week, reminded us of this very thing when he wrote, one of the primary ways regular people can help curb the spread of a virus is to comply with recommendations. Remember, we do, we do this not in fear and self-preservation, but as an act of love to the vulnerable whom this sickness might kill. Much of this compliance can become worship-filled acts. Wash your hands and say a 20-second prayer for your neighbors while you do so. Lord, protect the vulnerable from this virus. Of course, you know you're supposed to do these things, but you may not have realized that these ordinary acts of self-restraint are incredible acts of neighbor love and should be acknowledged as courageous and spiritually significant. Over the next few months, our lives will be filled with the inconvenience of canceling cherished events, but it so happens that self-sacrificial love is always inconvenient, End quote. So brothers and sisters, let's be reminded, Christians aren't anarchists and we're not rebels. We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless doing so would bring us into direct conflict with the commands of God according to Acts chapter 5 verse 29. In that case, we must obey God rather than men. But where there is a pandemic going on in the culture and where a whole culture, not just the church, is being asked to enter into this period of isolation and, and care, then we should seek to comply. And even then, even if we were called upon for some reason to disobey Our disobedience is passive, it's not, sorry, it's passive, not active, and we willingly accept the consequences of our actions in those situations. So that's the first thing we must remember to do. As an act of faithfulness to God, we submit obediently to the governing authorities. Second thing we should be reminded of and remember to do in these days is we speak gently. Look at what, again, what Titus. Is said, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. To speak evil includes things like slander and treating people with contempt. We see something of that in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 where Paul says in verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Again, the scope is comprehensive. We malign or curse no one with our words. We strive not to stir up strife, ill will, or trouble. No, as God's people we are called to be peaceable, and gentle, uncontentious, and forbearing, friendly, and considerate. We exercise our duty out of a life governed by God's wisdom, and we want to be concerned with sweet reasonableness toward everyone that refuses to hold a grudge and that, it, that seeks to give others the benefit of the doubt. You know, in these days especially, a lot of Christians have a lot of different opinions about what's going on. A lot of churches think differently about this. And you know what? That's okay. Last time I checked, this is the first time we've, in our generation, ever had to encounter something like this. So we're all feeling our way through, seeking to do so faithfully. But let's remember, as we go about this, to speak gently to one another and about one another. Let's remember to focus on the the fact that Christians are going to respond differently to all the things that have come and will come. A few points on that as by way of application for how we can speak gently in these days. Number one, let's remember loving our neighbor is going to look different for different people. Some of us will interpret loving our neighbor as a command not to step foot outside of our home for two months and abstaining from all of life's necessities. Others will feel that love for neighbor compels them from time to time to get face-to-face with church members, even if it's really mask-to-mask or as a time of keeping comfortable social distance. The former person may indeed struggle with fear and have an underlying idol of health, but the latter may struggle with submission or having under, an underlying idol of independence. But both genuinely feel they're trying to honor the commands and wisdom of Scripture. So we can be charitable with one another, even if we come to different conclusions about how to love each other in this time. Number two, people will have different interpretations Uh, about the statements that are made by our government and the CDC and the World Health Organization. I mean, what does government submission look like in these days? And am I supposed to obey recommendations or am I supposed to obey regulations? For now, let's recognize that obeying government recommendations isn't always interpreted by everyone the same way. And so we should be careful how we react to to those things and let other people see things differently than we do. Number three... Let's make our decisions without maligning those who make different ones. If some churches around the nation feel they have the grounds to meet on a Sunday morning in a small gathering or taking proper precautions and seeking to do all they can to stop the spread of the coronavirus, it's important that they don't see their perspective as the only faithful one. Also, if others decide to cancel their Sunday worship gathering like we've chosen to do, we need to be careful with declaring our choice as the obvious one or the only possible biblical decision that someone could make in order to obey civil authority. Now, that time may certainly come and seems to be increasingly coming where physical gatherings will be less and less uh, recommended and more regulated, at least for the time being. But in, the, in this interim time where we're still trying to feel our way through, let's give each other grace and space to obey the Lord. Fourth and finally on this topic of speaking gently, Let's be wise on social media, brothers and sisters. It isn't the time where we need armchair epidemiologists voicing opinions on stats. This is a time when we need to give deference to experts and importantly, not cloud the air with misinformation. Let's love our neighbors by sharing important information. Don't harm them by being unwise about what you share. It's helpful to share and footnote reliable things. But it's harmful to circulate hearsay. In fact, Ephesians 4.29 says to not let any unwholesome talk. Unwholesome talk doesn't just mean cursing. Unwholesome talk means things that may not be true. So let's not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may give grace to those who hear. So before you share something on social media, love your neighbor by taking a few minutes to at least read the whole article, or better yet, do your best to verify it's coming from a reputable source. Now, I don't say that because I think we're guilty of some gross negligence in that area. In fact, I don't think that at all. But I'm just giving us uh, um, ideas and ways to think as we, as we walk through this together. I'm not, not responding to anything I've seen whatsoever. So if you think it's your post, it's not your post. Okay. Let's remember we're all in this together, brothers and sisters, and we're not all going to see things uniformly or experience things in the same way. Satan would love nothing more than to sow seeds of division during this time. And though we disagree on some things, we can all agree to live out the great commandment by pursuing both clarity and charity for the sake of our Savior's glory and the good of our neighbors. So let's remember we're called to speak gently. as, As Titus says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Thirdly and finally under this first point about in this moment what we're supposed to do, let's remember to show humility. Look again at chapter 3 verse 2 where Titus says that we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Showing, demonstrating perfect courtesy has the idea of humility and meekness attached to it. Humility sums up well all of Titus' instruction so far, only if we are humble, only if we actually take word from outside of ourselves can we operate like this. We, only humble people can be submissive. Only humble people can seek to be obedient to others. Only humble people can be eager to serve and share. Only humble people will refuse to speak evil. Only humble people will avoid quarreling and being gentle. Showing perfect courtesy to all people is our calling in these days, brothers and sisters. It's a conscious placing of others ahead of ourselves. It's an attitude and action that flows from, as Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse three, considering others as more important than yourselves. It's the mind of Christ. Back in 1527, perhaps some of you have come across this uh, historical fact this week. A deadly plague hit the town of Wittenberg where Martin Luther was serving and he wrote a letter on that occurrence to a dear friend Reverend John Hess and in that letter he explained how churches should deal with such complicated circumstances and his words are incredibly timely for us and I want you to notice as I read the words of Martin Luther in the 1500s just how relevant they are today and how they exemplify the perfect courtesy that Paul is telling Titus to tell the churches to exemplify and that we should exemplify as well. He writes, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God would wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God, quote. So that's the kind of realistic faith we want to have. It's not brash. It's not blind faith that seeks to just operate outside of God-ordained wisdom, but neither is it foolhardy and reckless. Rather, it's prudent and wise, governed by love of neighbor and love of God. May God grant us to have such perfect courtesy among the people we are called to live and serve in these days. So that's the first thing we need to remember in this moment. In this moment, let's remember what to do. We submit obediently, we speak gently, and we show humility. Number two, in this moment, let's remember who God is. Let's remember who God is. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't change. He doesn't need updates. He doesn't go out of date. He doesn't get better. He doesn't depreciate. He is forever and will be the eternal I am. He is perfect and he is self sufficient. And his promises are as true and fixed as his character. Brothers and sisters, as the news has changed moment by moment throughout this entire past couple of weeks, God has not changed at all. His promises haven't changed. God's sovereignty over the world never wavers. From our perspective, the world might seem like a series of dumpster fires in these days, but God assures us that he is enduring in his power, in his presence, and in his purpose, even, maybe especially, in the midst of messes. As our brother Jim reminded us on the front end of the sermon, the truth of Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And that psalm concludes with this reality in Psalm 46:10, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations, I'll be exalted in the earth. And let's remember that no matter what happens, brothers and sisters, our greatest problems are already solved. If God has met our deepest need, which we're getting ready to talk about here in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, if God has met our deepest need, namely our salvation, he will much more provide for us all the other lesser needs that we have. This is his promise according to Romans eight thirty two. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, all things that we need in this life? It's an argument From the greater to the lesser. The greater thing being our salvation, the lesser things being the things of this life that we need. So, the way that I think we could be encouraged, and the way that we are encouraged in this passage, is to be reminded of the greater things that God has done for us. Because it's the greater things and being reminded of those greater things that God puts the lesser things in perspective. And we think, wow, if God did all that for me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay these next several weeks or months. So let's rehearse the greater thing that God did for us. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Brothers and sisters, at one time, we were hopeless. We were in a hopeless condition. That was the character of our lives before God. We might not have seen ourselves that way, but that's how God saw us. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, and we were passing our days, not living our days, not investing our days, but passing them, wasting them, in various passions and pleasures and in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. As Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 put it, we were doomed, we were dead, we were depraved. That was our resume spiritually before God. At one time in our lives, we were a spiritual corpse controlled by our sin nature, Satan and the world condemned with no hope, no future. But God intervened. We see in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. You know, this Titus chapter 2 verse 4 reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 which also says, but God being rich in mercy when we were dead in sins. Praise God for two fours in the Bible. Titus 2.4, Ephesians 2.4. Notice four precious truths that we are taught in these three verses from Titus chapter 3 verse 4 through chapter 3 verse 7. First of all, God cares for us. God cares for us. Paul begins with the basic and beautiful truth That God loves us. In fact, both his kindness, that is his goodness and generosity, and his love has made an appearance. Notice again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... This is the third appearance in Titus. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read about the grace of God appearing. In chapter 2, verse 13, we read about the glory of God appearing. And here in chapter 3, verse 4, we read about the goodness of God appearing. What does Titus have in mind here? He has in mind the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. The Son of God, who inhabited eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, taking upon himself the womb of a Virgin Mary, being conceived of the Holy Spirit, being born as a human being, both God and man, fully and truly God and man, as our Savior. This is what he has in mind when he says, the kindness and the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared. He has in mind the fact that God sent a Savior into our world when we were at our worst. Paul begins first, By reminding us that in the face of the dark black backdrop of our sin, that God did something about it. Far worse than a virus, far worse than a plague, far worse than anything that might rock our planet, is the spiritual death that we are born into by virtue of our union with Adam. We are born... Separated from God and in need, desperate need of a Savior. And unless God sends a Savior, we are without hope and without God in the world. But chapter, two, verse four, chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verse 4 of Titus reminds us that when we have at our worst moments no hope, God in Christ has sent a light into our world. God cares for us. Secondly, I want you to see God changes us. Look at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps the greatest verse in the scriptures on the doctrine of what we call regeneration, new birth, new creation. The new birth that's experienced by those who have repented of sin and put their trust exclusively and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins first by telling us how this regeneration did not happen. How did we not get saved? Well, we didn't get saved because we contributed goodness to it. How could we? Chapter 3, verse 4 says we didn't have any. Or chapter 3, verse 3, rather. says we didn't have any. We were foolish. We were disobedient. How could we offer anything to God by which we could be saved? But no, God tells us here that he saved us not because of works done by us, in righteousness. His words could not be more plain. Salvation is not earned. Maybe you're out there watching and you've joined us on this live stream and this coronavirus and everything that's going on has shaken your life up. It's caused you to rethink what you're living for and how you're living in eternity. This is a gift from God in this moment to you. This sense of uncertainty and difficulty and and what's next and not knowing the future I'll commend you this morning to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is able to save you right where you are this morning by crying out to him. And it's not because you, you, don't, you don't work on being a good person. You don't need to make any resolutions in these days. Oh, oh Lord, if you'll just let this virus pass, I'll be a better person. I'll start going back to church. I'll, I'll, I'll do the things I know I'm supposed to be doing. I'll read my Bible. Look, all those things are good. You should go to church. You should read your Bible. But don't put the cart before the horse. You need to come to Jesus Christ and cry out to him and ask you to save you from your sins, and he'll do it. And you don't have to perform for him. You don't have to offer him any works done by you in righteousness. Rather, he will save you freely according to his own goodness and mercy. That's all you need to do. Regeneration is not something you can work up. We were all dead spiritually, without a heartbeat, no pulse, nothing. The walking dead is what we were spiritually speaking. But on your best day, you had nothing in that state to give God, and neither did I. We can't work our way into heaven, but according to God's mercy, coupled with his kindness and with his love, he saved us. That is, he delivered us from slavery to sin and rescued us from death and hell and wrath and the grave. And it was according to his own loving kindness. It was according to his own son that he gave when he appeared 2,000 plus years ago. Now, notice, that's that's how he didn't save us. So how did he save us? Well, not, again, in verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is an absolute miracle, brothers and sisters. Regeneration, negatively, is the cleansing away of our sin and the renewing of our hearts and our souls positively by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration washes us. It makes us clean through the new birth. The imagery of washing has nothing to do with baptism, for it's the Holy Spirit who is washing us, not externally, but internally that we are being cleansed. Now, granted, we we profess that baptism and we go forward in baptism in obedience to Christ's command, but that is not what saves us. It's this regeneration and washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit that does. So first of all, God cares for us. Second of all, God changes us. Third, God comes for us. God comes for us. Look at verse 6 whom he poured out, that is the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, God the Father pouring out the Holy Spirit richly on us, through Jesus Christ our Savior. God is generous when he gives us the spirit. His spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives. When we cry out to Christ for mercy to save us, we're not left with just a pardon certificate for heaven. We are, we are given a third person of the Trinity to live in our lives, the Holy Spirit of the living God. God comes and takes residence in our life. He comes for us. He's poured out His Spirit on us abundantly, generously, richly through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's not just content to forgive your sins. He wants to make you His home. So God has come for us. Fourthly and finally, God comforts us. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. So that being justified by His grace... We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It means by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us by faith alone, we stand before God just as if we'd never sinned. In fact, just as if we'd always obeyed. We're not made justified. We are declared justified. And how did we receive this legal acquittal, this forensic standing of righteousness before God? Paul adds that it was his kindness that moved us to save, move him to save us. It was his love that moved him to save us. It was his mercy and it was his grace that moved him to save us. So we are given a picture here of a full salvation that God gives us in Christ. This is our greatest need. We need to be acquitted. We need to be declared innocent. We need to be transformed and all of that is made possible by the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And Titus makes it, Paul makes it abundantly clear to Titus here and makes it abundantly clear to us that this is our greatest need. And then as we think about this God who has done all this for us, will he not meet our lesser needs? Will he not see us through these perplexing and trying and bizarre and difficult days? Surely he will. He having saved us, having regenerated us, having justified us, having redeemed us, he now comforts us with a word about our future. We are heirs. If you have put your trust in Christ, you're an heir right now in hope. It's not yet here. Notice he says, we're an heir according to the hope of eternal life. It isn't yet here. Now, as believers, we do presently have eternal life by virtue of union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, our full and final hope has yet to be realized. But there is no question that this inheritance is going to be received. If God's done all that, will he not fulfill his promise to bring us to the hope of eternal life? As the work of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have signed, sealed, and settled this issue. So that's our hope. And it's in that hope that we face these days together. So, brothers and sisters, in this moment, let's remember who God is. And let's remember what God has done for us. And let's rejoice that the greatest problems in our lives have been solved and that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've seen two things we need to remember in these days. In this moment... Let's remember what to do. We submit obediently. We speak gently. We show humility. Secondly, let's remember remember in this moment who God is, that he saved us, that he cares for us, that he's comforted us, and that that he's solved our deepest and most profound problems. Number three, and finally, in this moment, let's remember why we're here. Why are we left here? Why didn't God, when he saved us, just take us to heaven? Or just... Wrap everything up and come back. No. In this moment, we're here for a purpose. And this letter is filled with intentional purpose for why God has left us as his children here in this world. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. He kind of summarizes why we're here. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We are here for good works. We are here to serve other people eagerly. That's why we're here. The word every indicates that the command is comprehensive. In fact, think about Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Why did God save us? Well, he saved us. How did he save us? By grace through faith, not of ourselves, that's, but through the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. 4, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were recreated, we were saved, we were transformed, we were justified, we were renewed, we were cleansed, we were forgiven, so that we could be ready to serve other people, to care for other people. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, emphasizes this as well when Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, this is our time. This is our time to step up, to love God, to love neighbor, to love brother and sister, to love each other, to care for one another, to make sure our needs are met, to care for one another in such a way that we can glorify God and show people what the love of God looks like in the people of God. A recent piece at the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, just the last week or so, it's called The Church Must Be a Refuge in the Midst of, Midst of Fear. And I want to read you a portion of that piece. But COVID 19 is a great opportunity for witness, the writer says. Our communities are full of scared people. Depression, anxiety, and suicide are all likely to spike in the next few weeks. I can guarantee you of this, COVID 19 comes paired with a mental health epidemic. Bereft of community, the outdoors, work, and school, individuals and families will face unprecedented assaults on their minds. The church must respond. We must make our services physically safe places, adopt a high standard of hygiene in wider society so that we can provide a refuge of mind and spirit to scared people. Since COVID-19 is especially dangerous to elderly, churches can seize the opportunity to deliver food and basic supplies to older people in their communities so that they don't have to go out. This will save lives, minister to the spirits of these dear brothers and sisters, and be a witness to all their watching neighbors. Brothers and sisters, just pause the quote, just to make this application, if any of you out there are in need, um, or if you have family or friends or neighbors who are in need, we have already had people in our own church reach out to us eager to meet those needs. They've contacted me. I'm sure they've contacted our other pastors and deacons saying, hey, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? We have people on a waiting list waiting to serve you and help you. If there's a need you have, feel free to reach out to our deacons or our elders, and we will seek to do what we can to minister to your needs in this time. Continuing with the quote, since COVID 19 will lead to school cancellations, Christian families can organize parent chairs for small groups of kids and use these as opportunities for discipleship in the home, which has proven to have an immensely fruitful effect. I want to make this application to you, brothers and sisters. Don't waste this time at home with your kids. Don't waste it. If you have a young family or an older family, invest this time in relationship, invest this time in worship invest this time in Bible reading, invest this time in prayer, invest this time in conversation, invest this time in fun. Do all of that, but make sure that this season where the Lord has called us to be together in a more intentional, protractive way, don't waste it. Invest it. Parents, you are the greatest influence in the lives of your kids. And so we, we, we pray that you would pour yourselves into your kids in these days. Read the scriptures to them. Point them to Jesus. Remind them of God's purposes. Remind them of God's goodness and call them to trust in him alone. This is a great moment for you as parents. We, we, won't, we won't get an opportunity like this, Lord willing, much more to, to have our lives transformed in the way they're being transformed and our schedules thrown off and all those things you wish you had time for. Oh, I wish we had time where we could just read, sing, and pray. Well, now you got time to do it. Read, sing, and pray. It's not all you have to do. Play games, build puzzles, have fun, but don't forget to read, sing, and pray with your kids. Finally, the quote concludes, since COVID-19 will cause many people to be afraid, Christians can, when appropriate, meet friends for dinner or coffee and talk about fear and the God who casts out all fear. We can explain that we're just as afraid as everyone else, that we aren't really very brave people, but Christ died for us. Whom shall we fear? COVID-19? Hardly. So that's the end of the quote. But let's be reminded, brothers, that we need to be ready for every good work. Sisters, since shortages of basic commodities are a guarantee, we can set an example of generosity to our families, to our church, to our community. Christians have been showing generosity for a long, long time. In the days of the ancient church, Justin Martyr wrote this, quote, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. I mean, that's as old as Acts chapter 2. Right, the people who the, the people who were first hearing the gospel on the day of Pentecost, that entrusted themselves to Jesus, that repented of sin, that were baptized, and were added to the church, they devoted themselves to caring for the church, to giving, to making sure that 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 in the face of immediate persecution and social isolation that they were forced into, that they shared everything in common. Acts two forty two through forty seven. They sold land and the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet for use to bless the church in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And they even arranged in Acts chapter 6 for the distribution of food. So, brothers and sisters, this is who we are as the people of God. So we need to be generous in these days, generous with our attention, attention to our fellow church members, our brothers and sisters that we love and that our, that our, that our family Make sure we contact them. Reach out to your friends. Reach out to those in your small group. Reach out to those in your family. And reach out to those who are close to, you're close to in church. And check on them. Make sure they're doing okay. Be generous with your supplies. If and when we continue to have, a, have difficulty with uh, accumulating everything we need, let's be eager to share with friends and neighbors and coworkers, but especially with the household of faith. And let's be gen- We're going to be generous with meeting needs. We know some of you in our church have... Face job loss, have faced difficult financial strains, we, we want you to make those needs known to us. We want to care for you in this time. And so we want to, if a need arises in the body, brothers and sisters, let's be eager to give and meet that need, especially to those who are most affected. Remember what John said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, How does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. What John is saying is this, brothers and sisters, that if your heart does not move with compassion and generosity, when you see your brother or sister in need, you ought to ask yourself whether you're a member of the family or not. If you don't care about your brother or sister, are you really a brother or sister? Does the love of God reside in someone Who has no compassion for the people of God? No. When God saves us, he imprints his DNA on our hearts. God loves his people, and so do we. Now let me conclude with this reminder. Whatever happens, brothers and sisters, know this this is our time. God has raised us up, just like he told Esther, for such a time as this. It's no accident that we're here. This is our time to think not about ourselves, but it's a time to think about each other. It's a time to think about our families. It's a time to think about our brothers and sisters in the church. It's time to think about our neighbors. It's time to think about our co-workers, many of whom are scared and will only grow more so as the days unfold. This is our time. God has raised us up. It's no accident that we're here. This is our time to hold out the gospel, to hold out the word of life to those around us and give the hope to those who are afraid and are wondering what's going to happen. This is our time to trust our God no matter what the future brings. We know where our hope lies. We've been reminded of it this morning. We know where our security lies. We know where our future lies. It's, the, it's in the one who conquered sickness, who touched the lepers and healed them with the word. It's in the one who conquered death who said to Lazarus, come out. It's in the one who defeated death, not just for a time, but forever. It's in the one who will return to resurrect this world and the bodies of those who trust in him, even the bodies of those who were racked with coronavirus and died as a result of it. So let's not be afraid. Let's not give way to panic. Instead, let's serve those around us who might be filled with fear. If this pandemic hits our town, In all its fury, let's be ready to give our energy, our time, and ourselves to serve those who both know him and those who do not yet know him. Let's be ready to share his love. Let's be ready to share his gospel. Let's use this time well, and may we be found faithful and ready for every good work. May God bless us to that end. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing once more. Father, how grateful we are to be reminded this morning that your word is true, that your word is relevant, that your word speaks in the midst of our moment and reminds us of what we are to do, of how we are to live, of what we are to think, and how we are to behave. In this moment, Father, help us to remember what we're to do. Help us to remember to obey and submit obediently, to speak gently, to show humility to all. Help us in this moment, to remember what you've done for us, that you've come after us, that you've saved us, that you've changed us, and that we have a future hope awaiting us. And in this moment, while we're here, let us remember why we are. To love you, to serve others, to be ready for every good work. Make us ready. Open up opportunities and doors for us to serve and to care, for we ask it in the glorious name of the one who does and who is, even Jesus Christ. Amen.